And so really what we're going to be, to be studying we're, we'll, is this new ministry, as this new uh, kids ministry and student ministry starts, uh, we'll be doing everything in sort of six-week sets. And typically, uh, we would sort of be moving either to a, a new doctrine or a new topic or a new book of the Bible after six weeks. But this particular study is actually going to take us 12 weeks, not counting tonight. Tonight's more of just an introduction. Uh, and, and so it'll be in two parts, but uh, we'll, we'll have all of this online. And so if you miss a night or if you end up volunteering and you're working six, for six weeks with the kids and then back over here for six weeks, um, all of that will be online. You'll be able to access it there or we can get you CDs as well so you won't miss anything. But it's not necessarily that you'll be uh, left behind or anything uh, if, if, you were, if you were to miss the first six weeks. It all, it all works together, but it doesn't necessarily uh, depend on each other to get anything out of it, I don't believe. And so what we're going to be talking about is, is understanding and sharing the heart of the gospel. Uh, now, of course, one of the things that we want to do, yeah, we want to, we want to do effective kids ministry. We want, to, we want to do effective student ministry, but we want to be able to do ministry for the whole family, right? We, we want to be able to reach the entire family. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing on Wednesday nights with the adults uh, is, is hopefully hitting the mark that is helpful for, uh, for any believer, for parents of young children, uh, for senior adults, wherever you may classify yourself, hopefully this will be helpful. Uh, because what's going to happen over this, this, the course of this study is we're going we're to spend some time answering some very, very, very important questions about the basics of Christianity. Uh, and some of these may be questions that you've asked Maybe there are questions that you are asking. Some of these will be questions that you already feel pretty confident you know the answer to. Uh, but the reason we're still going to cover those, these questions is, is because these are the questions that our culture and that society is asking about the Christian faith. And so if we want to, if we want to uh, effectively communicate the gospel to our children, these are the questions they're asking. If you want to effectively communicate the gospel to your neighbor who doesn't have any idea what's going on in Christianity or in the church, these are the questions that they're going to ask. And so hopefully we'll be growing in our understanding of the faith, but we'll also be growing in our uh, ability to defend the faith. And so I want to begin tonight, and again, uh, this is more of an introduction than it is anything else. But as a launching pad, I want to begin in the small epistle of Jude. Uh, verse 3 of Jude, if you want to find your place there, we're going to sort of use this as a diving board uh, to launch us into this study. We'll be spending most of our time in Romans uh, through this study. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. Uh, but if you'll turn to Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you, listen, that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. This is a popular verse. Uh, this is a verse that's, that's referenced a lot when it comes to Christianity, specifically when it comes to the church. But there's some really important implications here for what it means to be a Christian. 
There's some really important implications here for what it means to be a New Testament church, right? I mean, we have to be able to, to answer the question, what is the faith that is passed down to the saints? Right? If we're going to obey what God's Word says, these are some of the things that we need to understand about this verse. Right? What is the faith that's been passed down to the saints? How, how do we define it? How do we explain it? How do we communicate it? Right? How do we contend for this faith? What does it mean to contend for the faith? What does it mean to defend the faith? What does it mean to protect the faith while also sharing the faith? And of course, what does it mean to pass down the faith to the generations that come after us? Right? What does it, what does it mean to pass the faith on from generation of saint to generation of saint? And so these are essentially the questions that we'll be answering in this study. Now, again, they're, they're obviously very important questions for us to answer because they give us insight into why we exist and then how we f effectively fulfill uh, the mission that God has given to the church. But in order to answer these, these larger overarching questions, I think we need to begin by answering some more specific questions. Again, as I said a moment ago, some, some very common questions that both Christians and non-Christians are asking. Now, I'm going to give you all of the questions that we'll be covering in this study in just a moment, but before I give those questions to you uh, that we're going to be answering in, in two parts really over a 12-week uh, course of study, I want us to consider for just a moment really the complex cultural landscape we find ourselves in. Our culture, and culture is always complex, right? This isn't anything that's necessarily new. It may be different, right? It, uh, cultures may be complex for different reasons, but we really live in a, in a complex cultural landscape. And the thing is, we can only obey what the Bible tells us to do in the culture in which we live, can't we? You can't obey what the Bible tells you to do in a culture that you're not in, Right? You can't share the gospel with the people that God has not put before you. And so we need to understand something about the cultural landscape that we live in, right? Now, for more than a century, so for all of our lives, we've heard atheists predicting the coming of this quote-unquote brave new world, right? Where, where belief in God will no longer be necessary, Right? Atheists have been predicting this over and over and over again for the last century. Their, their suggestion is that scientific progress will, uh, will, will replace religion. Uh, even worse, that it will simply place religion in a museum of historical artifacts. John Lennon from the Beatles commented in 1966, he said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I will be proved right. Now, in spite of the predictions of John Lennon, of, of more famous atheists like Richard Dawkins or, uh, or, or, or uh, Ricky Jarvis, the fact of the matter is it's not played out. Christianity isn't gone. Religion isn't gone. Spirituality isn't gone. In fact, millennials and Gen Zers, and if you're not up to date on the generations, uh, I are a millennial, right? So that's... Uh, that's that's my age. Gen Zers are the ones that are out there on the slip and slide right now. Uh, and so in spite of all of these predictions, millennials and Gen Zers have, have just not been able to imagine that there's no heaven, that there's no afterlife. The Washington Post noted recently that the world is expected to become more religious, not less religious. They contend that just as science has grown, so has religious fervor. Now, here's the thing. Here's where it gets complicated. That growth is not necessarily, in fact, I would say it's rarely 
at least in our context, reflected in the traditional religious affiliations. It's not religious the way you and I would typically think about being religious. It's not spiritual the way we would typically think about being spiritual. You see, for the idea of religion in general, the future does seem bright, that people will become increasingly more religious. Current demographic trends indicate that the 21st century will be more religious than the 19th or 20th century either one was. People are getting more religious. And so here's what this means for us. The spiritual side of existence, and I think as Christians we would agree that there's a physical side and a spiritual side of existence, right? And so the spiritual side of existence still resonates with people. It even resonates with people in a secular age. A secular people recognize that there's a spiritual side of things. But, you knew it was coming, right? <laughs> there it is, the but. But, but confidence, confidence in institutionalized religion is not growing. Interest in spiritual things may be, interest in some idea of religion may be, but interest in institutionalized religion for example, the church, is not growing. In fact, with a growing interest in spirituality, another movement is also gaining very rapid momentum. Who has heard of the deconstruction movement? Anybody heard that term, deconstruction movement? It's a very popular movement, especially among millennials and Gen Zers. And what the deconstruction movement is doing is it's essentially deconstructing religion. Right? The, the idea behind it is that you take away all of the foolishness, if you will. right? You're, we're, we're going to deconstruct our faith so that we can get down to the very basics. And here again is where this gets incredibly complicated. Because something that is very unique about the generation in which we find ourselves living. This is the first generation in the history of the world that has deified self. Now what I mean by that has given self any sort of deity. You read all of world history and every generation has readily acknowledged that there is a being outside of them that is greater than them and more powerful than them. Right? Not every, not every people group, not every generation has necessarily readily admitted that that being is the one true God. But every generation, every people group throughout all of history has assumed there's a being greater than them outside of them, that, that, that there's something lacking in them that this being out there has. That's not true of the generation in which we live. For the first time in world history, people tell themselves that there's nothing lacking in here. Right? There is something spiritual out there, but it's something I can find. Right? It's something I can achieve. It's, it's something I can attain to. And so all of this makes for a really complicated situation. It leads to this, this deconstruction movement that's taking place amongst Christians, particularly young Christians or, or children of, of Christians. Now, again, the basic idea behind deconstruction is that institutionalized religion is nothing more than this thinly disguised power grab. Right, where leaders leverage religious institutions to maintain their power and influence. Now, undoubtedly, that does happen, doesn't it? You see corruption in religion. You see corruption in the church, right? We even see corruption in Baptist churches, as, as sad as it is. It does happen. 
There's, that's, that's what makes this so difficult. That's what adds so much fuel to this type of movement that's happening in society is because there's so many examples that support these types of conclusions. And here's the other thing, and this is where it gets a little bit sticky, but we've got to address it. The media has weaponized religion. Specifically, the media has rep- weaponized religion as a political tool. So now that the term Christianity and evangelical are synonymous with political classifications. It's not surprising then that, that many think uh, Christianity's top concern is white middle class America. If you ask a non-Christian what, what, Christian, what Christianity's primary concern is and they've watched any news channel, they'll tell you it's white middle class America. It's not our primary concern. They'll affiliate affiliate every Christian with a certain political party. Again, I know it's a sticky conversation, but here's the reality, guys. Ultimately, we're not part of a democracy, are we? We've got one king, and we're part of one nation, right? One people who is longing for our citizenship to be realized in our country in God's presence. I mean, we should be so incredibly grateful for where we live and the freedoms that we have, but man, this is not our home. And our citizenship is not here. Our affiliations are not here. Our affiliations are with King Jesus. But the media tells the world something else, don't they? They tell the world that our affiliations are here, that our affiliations are with a certain demographic of people in the United States. Now, in addition to this, there there are others who sort of go the other way. It's not that Christianity is classified as more or less merely uh, political, but it's classified as this personal fulfillment, right? This is where it gets this is where it gets muddy waters with the deification of ourself. They think of Christianity as this self-help strategy, a way to become the best version of yourself, right? To, to live your best life now. It's that kind of idea that people construct of Christianity. And so for these reasons and many others, there, there, there is some level of credibility and deconstruction. We do need to deconstruct everything that is not gospel and just keep the gospel, right? But here's, here's, where, things, here's where things go awry. Yes, as Christians, we need to get rid of any heretical idea. But if we're going to deconstruct, it ought to be for the purpose of finding the truth. Get rid of all the lies and just find the truth. The purpose of deconstruction shouldn't be to dismiss the truth. And the deconstruction movement that's happening all across our nation right now and with some people that were very prominent in Christian circles that have now deconstructed, quote-unquote deconstructed, I should say, they're not getting back to the truth. They're just dismissing the truth. I mean, that's the problem. The current culture wants to deconstruct everything. But let's think about this logically. What happens if you deconstruct everything? You're left with nothing. If everything's deconstructed, there's nothing there to see. There's nothing there to behold. C.S. Lewis pointed out that you cannot go on seeing through things forever because the point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. But if you just go on seeing through things forever, he said it's the same as not seeing at all. You see, the purpose of sweeping away any sort of religious lie is to get to the truth. So if deconstruction is going to be helpful, you have to be able to separate. We have to be able to separate what is artificial, what is man-made, what is false, 
from what is true, right? What is ordained of God. Those are the things that we need to be separating. You see, spirituality, the reason these statistics say that spirituality is growing is because people are realizing there's something more. There's something more out there. They're looking for something that resonates with them. But the facts are, we need something more than spirituality. Something more than just a a spiritual idea that resonates. We need truth. And the thing is, truth truly resonates because it's just that. It's true. Now, I don't think any of you have probably ever heard this name. Carissa Shoemaker. Anybody ever heard that name? It's a good thing if you haven't. Carissa Shoemaker is in Southern California. Uh, The nicest thing I can say about her is she's got an incredible British accent. (laughs) But Carissa Shoemaker, you know what she does? She connects people with Jesus for the low, low price of $1,111. She'll connect you with Jesus. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people all across California, some of the most liberal places theologically that you can think of in our nation, Cal Berkeley, Napa Valley, Silicon Valley, are paying her $1,111 to connect them to Jesus. They get in a big room, there's all kinds of good music, and then all of a sudden she'll connect you with Jesus. Why? Why are people paying that kind of money? Because it resonates with them. They're looking for something and they found something that they feel like at least temporarily resonates with them. The problem is it's all a lie. It's all false. And so it may resonate temporarily, but there's nothing there that lasts. The only thing that lasts is truth. And this truth... It costs somebody way more than $1,111, but it don't cost you a thing. And so it's this truth. If we're going to deconstruct anything, if people are going to talk about deconstructing anything, it's got to be to get back to the truth, to something that lasts. So I don't have to go pay Miss Carissa $1,111 every month to connect me with Jesus. I can just have a relationship with Jesus, right? And so these, these are the things that's happening in this world. This is the, people are, are paying this money because it resonates with them. And so as I mentioned, we're going to be looking at a number of questions in this study to get down to what is true. The kind of questions the people who might go see Miss Carissa would be asking. The kind of questions of the people that you're going to see in the grocery store who are far from God might be asking. Again, some of the questions that even still, even as a Christian, even as a follower of Christ, you may be asking some of these questions. Now, I'm actually borrowing these questions from J.D. Greer in a book that he wrote, Essential Christianity. Uh, He organizes that book around ten words just going into the depths of what essential Christianity is. But through that process, um, as, as he's, as he's uh, thinking through and having Christians think through the basics of our faith, he asks these, these, these very pointed and these very practical and present questions that are, that are circulating in our society today. 
And so these are the questions I think we must uh, answer, our, answer for ourselves, excuse me, we must be able to answer for ourselves if we're going to be able to have the answer in this culture, right? If we're going to be able to contend for the faith as we saw in Jude, if we're going to be able to pass down the faith to the next generation, these are the questions that you and I have to be confident we have an answer to. So here are the questions. What is Christianity in a sentence? We're going to answer that very briefly in just a second. That's what you have on that handout that I give you just a second ago. But then as we actually get into the depths of this study starting on the 13th, the second question we'll ask is how do we even know there's a God? Third question, if God is real, why doesn't everybody believe in Him? Fourth question, is religion the answer? Fifth question, who is Jesus? Question number six, why do Christians talk about being saved. Question number seven, can anyone actually know they're going to heaven? Question number eight, is any of it actually true? Question number nine, aren't all religions basically the same? Question number ten, what does the Christian, why does the Christian life, excuse me, why does the Christian life seem so hard? Question eleven, very prominent right now in our culture, what does, excuse me, what about the Christian view of sexuality? Question number 11, what is the difference between being religious and being spiritual? And then finally, we'll ask the question, what's next? Or, or what do we do? What do we do now? And so as you can see, all of these are questions that people in our culture are asking. They want to know if any of this is true. They, they may be wondering who Jesus is. They, they may be asking questions like, how can I know if I'm going to heaven? What does it, what does it really mean if we're talking about being saved? Right? If God is real, why doesn't everybody believe in Him? Right? These are the kinds of questions that people who are seeking something more will be asking. And if they ask us these questions, then we ought to be able to give them an answer. Right? And so that's what we want to be able to do at the end of this. Now... As I mentioned earlier, for most of this study, we're going to be considering Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be using some of Paul's main uh, talking points <clears throat> excuse me, in his letter uh, to construct this very clear and biblical framework for our understanding of the faith that has been passed down once and for all to the saints. And Romans is an incredibly important book, of course. It's been incredibly important throughout church history you realize that it was actually Martin Luther's exposition of the book of Romans that led him to begin the Protestant Reformation. There have been incredible uh, historians and incredible theologians throughout church history that have been led to salvation by studying Romans. And so this letter, this letter to the Romans that we'll be considering is really considered one of the most clear works that's ever been penned of the essentials of the Christian faith. Did you realize that for over a hundred years, Harvard Law School required first-year students to work their way through the book of Romans? And the reason Harvard Law students had to work their way through the book of Romans is their professors wanted them to see how Paul built an argument, how he anticipated objections, and then answered those objections. That's how clearly and how well written the letter of Rome to Roman to the Romans is. And then finally, I would say Paul's reasoning in Romans is really it's it's shockingly relevant for, for those people who are in our culture today who are just not sure about Christianity. 
If nothing else, Romans is evidence that the fundamental question about the human condition has really not changed over the last 2,000 years. People today are really asking the same questions people were asking 2,000 years ago. And Paul is answering those questions in this letter. And so my prayer is that as we do this, we'll rediscover the goodness, the excitement, the liberation, and the power of the gospel through our time in this book answering these questions. You know, sometimes... I think as Christians, we're, deal- we're guilty of thinking of the gospel as the diving board instead of the swimming pool. You know, so many times it's like, well, 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 when we share the gospel with them and they jump in, they're good to go, right? We've got it. Man, they prayed, they, they followed Jesus, and it's, it's all good. And so then we just leave them to their own devices. And you know what happens when you leave people to their own devices and there's nothing to follow up that jumping off the diving board? Deconstruction movements happen. People start to abandon the faith. I mean, think about it this way, continuing to use this metaphor of the swimming pool. I mean, if we were all at the swimming pool and you saw me trying to teach Eden to swim, Right? And so I get Eden up on the diving board, right? I get her out there. I finally convince her to jump in. It's going to be okay, right? No floaties, no nothing, right? Just Eden, get up there and jump in. If she just jumps in and I turn and walk away and go sit back down in the lawn chair, you're going to be like, what in the world is the preacher doing? That little girl is going to drown out there in that swimming pool. And yet that's what we've done with Christianity, isn't it? We've led people to the diving board. We've said jump in and then we've abandoned them. Instead of getting in the pool with them and saying, listen, the gospel is the thing that saves you. It is the diving board, but it's also the pool, and so now let's swim in it. Right? The, the, the gospel isn't the diving board and the church the pool. No, the church is in the pool. It's not the pool, and the pool is the gospel. Right? And so, so we're, we're encouraging people to jump in the pool. Right? We want to get them in the pool. We want to get them on the diving board. We want them to jump in, but then we've got to swim with them. We've got to to help them answer these questions. And man, don't be embarrassed if these are questions that that you've asked and that you don't have answers to. Somebody should have been swimming with you. Someone should have been showing you what it means to be in this pool that is the gospel. And so as I mentioned, the first question we want to answer is, what is Christianity? And I do think it's important to be able to answer this question in a sentence. One of the worst things that we can do when someone asks us what Christianity is is to stumble and mumble around without any clear answer. You know, well, it's kind of it's like it's Jesus. Jesus is definitely there, and there's a church. You know, we just kind of, we have friends, there's friends there. Right? Sometimes we have food, and so we're just kind of like stumbling around trying to tell people what Christianity is. Right? We want to be able to communicate that clearly. And there's, there's all kinds of really good brief definitions of, of what our faith is about. But again, I, I'm borrowing this one uh, from J.D. Greer since I was borrowing these questions from him as well. I think he did a really good job uh, sort of summarizing this. You'll see that at the very top of that sheet. It's in italics there. God, and this is, this is the gospel, right? This, this is what Christianity is. God, in an act of grace, sent His Son Jesus to earth as a man so that through His life, death, and resurrection, He could rescue us, reign as King, and lead us into the eternal, full life we were created to enjoy. Christianity in a sentence, right? Spend some time this week, you might come up with an even better sentence than that. 
Next time I teach this, I'll use your sentence instead of his, right? But it's just a, it's just a simple way to sort of define what this is all about. Now, let's, let's spend some time, let's just break this down before we close tonight. Let's just start with that first word, God. Because isn't that where the gospel begins? It begins with God, doesn't it? And here's the thing. God exists. That's a pretty big statement, especially in our culture. Just, just two words. God exists. As you see on your sheet there, He exists. Not only does He exist, but He has been moving and speaking throughout history. God exists and He has been moving and speaking throughout history. Again, that's a huge claim. That's a bold statement. Now again, we're going to be answering some very important questions in this study, like how can we know that God is there? How can we know that He's real? How can we know that He exists? How can we know that He's been moving, not just throughout history, but He's moving even now? We'll be, we'll be answering questions, what is He like? We'll be answering questions like, how do we know that He's speaking to us, right? But moving on to the next little phrase there, in an act of grace. You know what grace means? Grace just means undeserved kindness. As simply as I could put it, grace is undeserved kindness. Grace is being given something that we do not deserve. And here's the thing, when grace is properly understood, it's what makes Christianity different from every other spiritual approach in the world. It's the grace of Jesus that sets what we're doing right now apart from anything else the world has to offer. You don't need Miss Carissa to connect you to Jesus because grace connects you to Jesus. You don't need financial riches to connect you to Jesus because grace connects you to Jesus. Search all of the other world religions and one, you won't find Jesus, but two, you won't find grace. Search all other spiritual approaches and of course you won't find Jesus, but you also won't find grace. Grace is the entire basis of the gospel. It's the melody line around which all other Christian truths are played. I, I referenced C.S. Lewis just a moment ago. But there's, uh, there's a story about C.S. Lewis when he was a professor at Oxford University. Of course, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis was, uh, for the first 29 years of his life, he was a prominent atheist. He hated God. He, well, he didn't hate God because he said God didn't exist. He hated any idea that God existed. When he was 30 years old, C.S. Lewis was saved and became one of the most famous and best apologetic, uh, uh, defenders of the faith of, of any Christian in all of history. And as he was professor at Oxford University, some of his colleagues were in a room one day and they had put all of the world religions that they could think of up on the chalkboard. And C.S. Lewis was... Uh, was, was walking by the room and one of his colleagues saw him and they hollered for him and got his attention and asked him to come in the room. Of course, they knew that he was a Christian because of all of his writings and his prominent work defending the faith. And they asked him, they said, you see what all we've got up here? We're, we're putting down everything that all of the world religions have in common. And there was all sorts of things that they had in common that they had listed. And sort of tongue-in-cheek, maybe even trying to give C.S. Lewis a little bit of a hard time, they said, did we miss anything in your Christianity? 
C.S. Lewis, as he entered the room, he still hadn't said a word. And without speaking a word, he walks up to the chalkboard, he grabs a piece of chalk, and under Christianity, he writes the word grace, puts the chalk down, and walks out of the room. Because grace was the thing that set, all, set Christianity apart from all of those other religions. All of those other religions were about earning something. All of those other religions were about deserving something. But Christianity was about getting something that we did not deserve. And so I would simply say to you tonight, grace is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Grace is what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Listen, at its very core, Christianity is not good advice about what we must go and do for God. But rather, it's good news about what God has done for us. It's not primarily instructions about morality or accountability. Those can be found there. It's not primarily instructions about goodness, though that can be found there. The gospel is a declaration of grace. Moving on in this sentence that we're looking at here, that phrase, sent His Son. Very simply, we're going to be talking about this a lot more, so I'm not going to go into detail tonight. But what was it that John himself wrote in John chapter 1, verse 14? God Himself became flesh and dwelt among man. Dwelt among us. That's what it means for Him to send His Son Jesus. We'll go into more detail of that, of course. But then, continuing on, so that He could rescue us. So that He could rescue us. I want you to think about this for just a second here. You'll see this as your next fill in the blank. The most important thing about Jesus is not what He taught, but what He did. Let's think about that for just a second. I'm not saying what... Don't leave here and be like, oh, Brent said what Jesus taught wasn't important. I didn't say that. I said more important than what He taught is what He did. Because it's what He did that gives His teaching credibility, isn't it? You look at any leader of any other world religion and the most important thing the followers of that religion will tell you that their leader give them is what he taught. But in Christianity, the most important thing that our leader, our Lord give us was his life. It's what he did. It's what he did on the cross. Right? It's Yes, what He taught was incredibly important. It teaches us why He did what He did and what it means for us that He did what He did. But if He didn't do what He did, then His teaching doesn't mean anything, right? It's just as empty as every other world religion, but Jesus did what no other religious leader could do. He not only died, but He was raised again on the third day. And so it's what He did that gives credibility to everything that He taught. And so Paul's letter to the Romans, you, if you notice this, if you've ever studied Romans, Paul speaks very little about what Jesus taught. And he speaks a whole lot about what Jesus did. And so that's what we're going to see. Because it's not Jesus' teaching that saves us. It's what He did that saves us. It's His death, burial, and resurrection that saves us. And so that's what Paul talks about. That's how Paul contends for the faith. I mean, here's the thing. This right here, this pulpit, this, this, this desk, if you will, this is not the symbol of Christianity. The cross is the symbol of Christianity. Because Christianity is about what Jesus did. 
Right? It's, it's, it's not about a, 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 a lecturing from where someone teaches. It's about a cross where our Savior died. And so, in essence, Christianity is really about rescue. Now, of course, that raises the question, why do we need rescuing, right? And the question that many non-believers ask is, how can a man who was on earth 2,000 years ago have something to do with my rescue today? Now, of course, these are questions that we're going to be diving into more deeply in this study, but we'll close tonight with this, uh, the final part of this sentence. Reign as king and lead us into the eternal and full life we were created to enjoy. Listen, it's important to remember that the gospel is not just about what Jesus came to rescue you from, but what He came to rescue you for. Not just what He came to rescue you from, but what He came to rescue you for. You see, that's the full and eternal life that you and I are created to enjoy. And as we're going to see, Paul, Paul explaining throughout our study, the gospel restores us to the life that we were made for all along. And so this is a truth that I think so many Christians and of course non-Christians forget or maybe never even realize. But it pulsates through almost every chapter of Paul's great letter to the Romans. And so through this study, we're not just going to be talking about something that, that resonates, right? We're going to be talking about something that is real. Because there's all sorts of things that will resonate with people for a season. But there's only one truth that is real. There's only one eternal reality, right? And that is the gospel. And so that's what we're going to be spending our time talking about. Now, here's the thing. This doesn't mean that these truths always come easily. It doesn't mean that these truths are always instinctive to us. They're not. It also doesn't mean that sometimes these truths are not going to be hard for us to hear. It doesn't mean that these truths won't be offensive. Man, if you spend any time at all in the gospel, you're going to get offended. And if you haven't, then you're not spending very quality time in the gospel. Right? This word should offend us. It should point out our faults and our failures, and it should be offensive. And so sometimes it's going to be. And the people you share the gospel with, sometimes they're going to find parts of this gospel incredibly offensive. And so how do we handle that? But here's the thing, we can be encouraged because that was Paul's experience as well. You and I aren't the only ones that find this gospel offensive. Paul, of course, didn't start out life as a Christian, did he? In fact, Paul's view of Christianity was that it was uh, too weak-minded, if you will. Christians were, were too lenient, right? There wasn't enough accountability. He believed that we were too forgiving of moral lawbreakers. That, that Christians weren't angry enough with Roman occupation. And so what did Paul do? He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. And yet when Paul saw Jesus one afternoon, everything changed. Paul encountered a power unlike anything he'd ever experienced. And in that moment, Jesus transformed his life. And he was still asking the same questions he had always been asking, but finally he had found the true answers to those questions. And people today will be asking the same questions Paul asked some 2,000 years ago. And our responsibility, mine and your responsibility, is to give them the answers that has already been provided through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I hope that you've had the same kind of experience that Paul had where Jesus has radically transformed your life. 
And just as Paul says in Romans 1.15 of himself, I hope that you too are eager. Literally, that's what he says in 1.15, that he's eager to share the good news. And I hope that you're eager to share the good news. You may not know where to start. You may not know how to answer some of these questions. But that's why we're going to study Paul's letter to the Romans so that we can match our eagerness with the preparation that we need of the truth that's been provided to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful for Your Word. We're so thankful for Your work. And we're so thankful, Lord, that even in the midst of a world that looks for answers everywhere but in Your Word, looks for solutions everywhere but in Your Gospel, that Your grace still reigns sufficient. And so, Lord, maybe if nothing else tonight, just remind us that Your grace is sufficient to reach the generation that You have set before us. Because, Lord, ultimately that's all we can do is reach the people that You have put before us. Be salt and light in the culture in which You have placed us. And so, Lord, help us to spend less time complaining about this culture and more time praying for this culture. More time meditating on the truth of Your Word so that we might provide this culture, this generation, this people what they most desperately need. Lord, without a doubt, we could just huddle up in this room and and hide from everything that's happening out there. But Lord, that would not be faithful to Jude 3. That would not be contending for the faith. That would not be passing the faith down to the saints that will come after us because, Lord, if we do not contend for this faith, there will be no saints after us. And so, Lord, may we be faithful to the task. May we contend for the faith and may we pass this faith down that has been once and for all delivered unto the saints. That what would resonate with us and with the people around us is far more than some flimsy, cheap spirituality, but real truth that's found in the gospel. And so, Lord, point us evermore to your Son, Jesus, and form us into His image so that we may be faithful image bearers, reaching those who are near to us and far from you. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.